Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction and science and kittens and mushrooms, but mostly kittens, I think. You know, kittens. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of a few books recently, a space fantasy book called Victory is Greater Than Death, a writing advice book called Never Say You Can't Survive, and an upcoming short story collection called Even Greater Mistakes. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist, and I'm the author of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. So today we're going to be talking about Lucifer, both the show of that name and the mythological figure of that name. So Lucifer just finally came to an end on Netflix, but our love for Satan goes on. Hail forever. Satan! Hail Satan! Uh, so we just watched the final season of Lucifer, and it confirmed our sense that this devilish procedural is all about the power of therapy. So we're going to be talking to showrunners Ildi Modrovich and Joe Henderson about the devil and the detective. And later in the show, we're going to talk about three important works about the Lord of Hell, two old movies, and one recent TV show. And for those of you who are supporting us on Patreon, next week we're going to have an audio extra talking about a couple of works of science fiction that deal with the afterlife in really interesting ways by Ian M. Banks and Philip K. Dick. And this is a good place to mention that if you support us on Patreon, you can get just lots and lots of extra stuff, including these audio extras every other week, which are basically like little bonus episodes. Yeah. Bonus episodes, you know. You can talk to us on Discord. You can talk to us on Discord. We have a Discord channel that's actually super active. All our patrons are in there. We're talking about you behind your back, so you better be in there so you can that you can see what we're saying about you. suggestions for episodes. Right. So if you supported us at a certain level, we solicit ideas for episodes. We solicit questions that we're going to answer in an upcoming episode. And, you know, we also post discussion prompts once a week for all of our patrons, and those can be reviews. Those can be things that we're obsessed with. Just, you know, we're constantly in contact with you on our Patreon. And this show is 100% supported by our Patreon supporters. It's a listener-supported show. We don't get—the devil doesn't bring us a briefcase of money, no matter how many it times sucks. we've asked him I to. I know. I know. Even though we're doing a whole episode about the devil, he still isn't bringing us get any wheelbarrows full of cash. So No gold doubloons with little no, horns on them. <laughs> no evil lucre whatsoever. So we're entirely supported by you, our good listeners. And we're just so grateful to all of you who've stepped up and supported us on Patreon. Um, so with that out of the way, let's talk about our Lord and Master, Satan. So lucky now to be joined by Lucifer showrunners Ildi Modrovich and Joe Henderson. We love Lucifer. It's such a fun show. It's just so, like, endlessly delightful. And we're going to go ahead and spoil the ending in which basically Lucifer kind of becomes a therapist in hell. And that feels very fitting because I've been saying all along that I feel like this is a show about therapy. You know, you have Linda and also the thing where angels self-actualize. So their subconscious image of themselves determines how they what their powers are and how they look. And then your personal guilt is what dooms you to hell or lack of hell, depending on how much guilt you have. Did you all talk about this? Did you think of this as a show that's about therapy? 
it's kind of a larger theme, I guess. It's it's we like to say it's about redemption. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, you know, we we can that sort of umbrella is the notion of therapy, right? Or at least working on yourself. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, for, it's also a show about forgiveness and, but not just forgiving others, uh, like Lucifer and, you know, forgiving his dad, but forgiving yourself. Cause he's the one. Yeah. Who- like in save Lucifer, where he actually starts turning into his devil form, but he was saved when he says, I want to forgive myself. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's so funny. Cause in the early goings in season one, it was like, how much do we want to really use this therapy? Like, how does this, you're sort of exploring, like, how is this the device in the show? And as we move forward, we realized how invaluable it was to understand Lucifer. But then, like, and I think I think to the, the point of the question, like, I think we started to realize how fundamental it was to the show to the point where, like, it, it's almost, like, terrifying to think that we wouldn't have leaned into it in this way because it really is about self-growth and introspection and all of the things like that, that, that is so fundamental to the show and therapy in general, but Lucifer's relationship with Dr. Linda is such a, a crux of so much of the storytelling and, and the thematics. Yeah. And I, I love that element. And I think that's just so fun. And, you know, I'm, I think it is the, the ingredient that redemption arcs need. Like if Kylo Ren got therapy, that would be just, <laughs> I would love that. That'd be so great. <laughs> So follow-up question, you know, one of the other ways that this kind of show feels really therapeutic to me is that Lucifer's power unlocks people's desires. And we see over and over again how he kind of sets people free to be their truer selves. He kind of gets them past some repression. Um, Like that guy, we were watching the episode last night with the guy who wants to be a dancer and then later we see him dancing in Lux. (laughs) It makes me so happy. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, again— is is part of the message of the show that repression is kind of unhealthy or that, you know, that or embracing evil. desire is actually part of the path to forgiving yourself and loving yourself? Yeah, and I think it's also embracing, you know, being as honest as you can with yourself. I think that's that's what I always took from Lucifer's skill is, is you know, he's so honest himself, like with others. He's just not honest with himself. Right. And I think that's that that was the interesting sort of complex little nugget about Lucifer. But what he does for others is he kind of forces them to be honest and, you know, not just about their desires, I feel like, but just about everything. Yeah. And I mean, I think we live in a world where so many people are fighting their desires and in doing so making themselves unhappy. And there is so much that, you know, like the truth will set you free. And the idea that like sometimes some desires uh, should be embraced and in doing so, all of a sudden a weight is lifted off of you. And that idea that like that is there's a freedom to that. Of, I mean, I think we all knew people and like, like I'll speak personally, like when I was in my teens to 20s, like I was holding back a lot of desires when it came to like hanging out with my friends. Like I didn't drink till I was 22. I was like trying to be good, trying to be on the right path. And then I realized I should actually have fun and like (laughs) let loose a little bit and let go. And you watch these people bottle all of those desires up and then grow resentments and negativities when it was like, Oh, just, just be your true self. It's okay. Uh, you'll, you'll be loved. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wanted to ask again, kind of following up on, on this question of repression about 
I mean, really about the question of evil, because we are talking about, you know, Lucifer. And I wonder if if you guys do think about the idea of repression being connected with evil. Is that part of what's going on here or is that kind of orthogonal? It's funny because while, while while we were talking about letting loose our desires and and you know being loved, there certainly could unleash something dark and sinister as well. Right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I mean yeah. you know if somebody's main desire is to murder you know right. Yeah, that's true. Children or whatever you know that's obviously don't embrace that desire. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I think that you know that's something also we we talked about a lot, especially with turning hell into a rehab center. <laughs> I don't understand. Every time I go through my hell loop, I keep making the same mistakes. Well, that's because you're avoiding your guilt, Reese. You need to confront it. You all do. I don't know. I'm telling you, no matter how hard I try, it feels like I'm destined to make the wrong choice. Ah, the old fate versus free will debate, my favorite. But you see, fate is just a result of the choices that you make. Do you really think it's possible to change? Of course. I mean, look at me. For millennia, I was down here, stuck in my own hell loop of sorts, thinking I deserved to be in charge of people's punishment. And then even when I left, I found myself in a cycle of selfishness and violence, debauchery, sex. Yeah, I mean, clearly it wasn't all bad, but the point is that with the right guidance and the right help, I was able to change, to grow, to find true meaning in life. We kind of tell ourselves, like, you know, not everybody's going to be worthy of redemption. Let's just, I mean, we, we, yeah. we, say that. we say if the devil can be redeemed, then so can you. And the possibility is always there. But you have to, like, that person, as we've, you know, said over and over again in the show, they have to want to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have to want to be better. And honestly, truly, inside, mm-hmm. way, way deep down. So that's, it, it's kind of all up to, up to the person. Your show always felt like it was kind of in conversation with The Good Place a little bit. And the ending of your show feels like it complements the ending of The Good Place really beautifully. Like they're, they don't feel like they're the same ending, but they feel like they're, they're complementing each other. So I'm wondering, like, when you saw the, the, assuming you did see the final episode of The Good Place, where they kind of have a, a thing where they turn hell into, or the bad place into a, a, a therapeutic venture. Did you sort of think, feel like that you were on the right track or did you feel like that was something that spoke to what you were trying to do? You know, it, it's funny because I've watched all of the good place and Bildi, correct me if I'm wrong, you've only watched a little I, bit, right? That's right. I watched a, a, a little bit of the first season and kind of, kind of fell off, but no, I have not watched it and I have not watched the end. But I, I have, and I think one of the things that was helpful is I knew what they'd done and Bildi didn't. Ah. And so... What's kind of nice is that, like, I was aware of steps they'd taken so that we didn't mirror too much because this was a, a path we decided on before I'd seen where they ended. But also, Ildi didn't know. And so we had the mixture of the raw storytelling we wanted to do, but also sort of me making sure that we weren't overlapping too much with them. So I wonder if, was there ever a version of your show where God was a lot more monstrous, sort of kind of uh, a His Dark Materials version of God? Um, I, I just wondered, were you thinking of like a New Testament God or an Old Testament God? Like, were you kind of thinking about, can we make him a little bit more of a dick um, or not? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think he, like everybody, every other sort of celestial character we wanted to make as as human as possible. So 
we wanted to make sure he was his own person and with his own flaws and even though he's god but it was funny because it was it was a big part of our conversation when we were writing him to also keep him a little bit better <laughs> like a little bit you know aspirational i think for the for the rest of us a little like to maintain a little bit of that mystery despite his you know human frailties that we also gave him you know yeah. So one thing that Annalie and I were talking about is this notion of we're told in the show that Hitler's in hell. We're told that Trump is definitely going to hell. And, <laughs> you know, various other horrible people throughout history are definitely in hell. But what if Hitler didn't feel guilty for, for the things he did? Why is he in hell if he didn't feel guilt? If he Yeah, thought, what if he was like, dude, this is what I always wanted to do? <laughs> <laughs> we it's funny, we had a long debate over that. And in our canon. The thinking is that even those people who are sociopaths with no sense of guilt upon going down to hell, that guilt does get drawn out of them. So sociopaths do not go directly to heaven. (laughs) The, the, The demons will find a way to make them feel the pain and guilt, even if they on earth were able to avoid it. Remember when when uh, Lucifer whispers into Lamexier? That was what we kind of decided he said to, to him. Oh, right. Is isn't in, in so many words he lifted whatever you know barriers or socio sociopathy he had, um, so that he would finally feel all the guilt. Right, because later he's like, I can't make it stop. I can't shut out the voices. So hopefully that's what's happening to Hitler too. Yes. <laughs> and Donna and all of them. Yeah, yeah oh totally. God. No, yeah. I love that idea that they go through a moment where they kind of get their um, guilt reinstalled and then they <laughs> have to go through their punishment. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it is a form of repression. Maybe they've been repressing the guilt the whole time. Maybe that's that comes back to that idea. So, I mean, one of the tropes in the early seasons of the show is that Lucifer keeps saying that doing police work is an extension of what he used to do in hell, that he is punishing people and that that's what he does. And obviously, as the show goes on, he starts to question that. And, you know, meanwhile, obviously, in the final season, you're pushing towards like more of a Black Lives Matter approach to policing, particularly in that one episode with Amenadiel. And I'm wondering, with Lucifer turning hell into a rec center or a rehab center, is that kind of a comment on our carceral state on how we maybe should be thinking about crime differently or because it does kind of come back to that in a way? Yeah, I think we shifted from police work to social work. I think that's something that we really embrace. It's something that we had to face in the room. And I don't know how much we'd, it's funny. It's not funny, but it's, it's, it's interesting because we, uh, we were always headed in this direction before black lives matter. But when the summer of George Floyd's murder happened, it really forced us to reevaluate things. And I think, I think the, the concepts that we've been playing with dovetailed with what was happening, but I think we sharpened them. I think it forced us to refocus it and look at the path we'd already been going on and make a lot of the sort of more subtler themes more overt and really dig into it because we were headed this direction, but being able to speak to, for one thing, the copaganda that exists in TV, the copaganda that we were a part of and try to take a look inward and speak to it and dramatize it was really important to us. Yeah, if I can add, I, I feel like it sort of fits into our, our earlier conversation about Lucifer's, you know, skill set of bringing out people 
desires and that you can you can almost say that he, he started off thinking well I'm the punisher that's how he saw himself but then by the end you can say no he was finding the truth you know he was a truth seeker right and you know that's it's, he's the light bringer you know that's that's what morning star right so i i feel like that's should be what is always behind law and law enforcement is finding the truth you know and i th- think that's what we were saying hopefully by the, by the end hopefully that that came across definitely so a sort of bigger question about the context of the show, which is just why do you think we have so much like pop cultural obsession about Satan? Like Charlie and I kept talking about this the whole time we were watching the show is like, you know, is Lucifer a rebel, a liberator? Is he part of our alienation from religion? Like what? Why is Satan so popular? <laughs> <laughs> I think there is just something fascinating about taking the concept of evil and evaluating it from every angle. And I think, for one, it's just it, it's a good thing to be pushing up against. But I think for us, what was nice is taking a cliche and turning it on its head, taking something that is so representative of one side and shifting it. And that subtle shift from evil to to desire, from darkness to light, like you, you there's just there's all those thematics to play. And I think. Listen, like you want to go for like representations of evil, you'd either take the half steps or you take the big swing. And I think in taking the big swing and going for the devil himself, you get that chance to go, okay, if what if you don't understand the worst? If you don't understand the very worst thing out there, what does that say about everything else? And to me, that's what was, as the person who came on to Lucifer after the pilot, that's what was so fascinating is. What if the devil is as misunderstood as anyone else, and all of a sudden that just unravels everything? Yeah, it's it's funny though. There's a lot of people who who were not pleased with. <laughs> <laughs> I know the, the million moms. Uh, uh, by the way, not a million. <laughs> a few hundred moms. <laughs> yeah. No, but we uh, there, there were people who actually wouldn't work on the show at first, especially because they were like, "Oh, this glorifies the devil. That's not you know that that ain't good. You know, you're glorifying evil, or you're making it romantic, or you know, he's he's sexy and and it's like, no, that it really wasn't our intention. Obviously, we we wanted to, yeah, it's to to take the the least celebrated person. Although you're right, there is, I get, you know, a, a fascination and and uh, you know, obviously, people who worship and get tattoos that are, you know, the, the devil, and you know, there's, you know, it's the mascot of little soccer teams, you know. Mm-hmm. The- I mean, it's right out there, right? But, but you know, we, our intention was to take the the you know the, the biggest villain and uh, find what was good in him, redeem him. I mean, he ruins eggs. That's all you need to know about him. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was that was terrible. It, oh, wait, by the way, hard disagree. Uh, <laughs> this, this conversation's over. <laughs> I, I'm Team Thousand Year Old Eggs. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So, final question, because I know we got to let you both go. But final question is just about like the queerness of the show, because we talked about repression and we talked about like the kind of how a lot of our problems and a lot of our like alienation stem from repression. But one of the things I love about the show is 
how explicitly queer it is and how Lucifer always finds these little ways to remind us that he's pansexual and that he, I just, you know, that one episode where he talks about how he's the skillet who flips straight guys, <laughs> which I just love that line. And, you know, Oscar Wilde was straight until he met me. And it's just, it's delightful. And and you've got obviously Maze and Eve in the final season, or in the final couple seasons. You know, was it important to you to kind of have that element? And did you have queer voices in the room? And did you feel like you had queer fans who were excited about this? Definitely. I mean, it's not only did we have queer voices in the room, but um, my daughter is is pansexual. Um, Joe's brother. I mean, we. I think that is such a lovely part of what's happening right now. Not just with Black Lives Matters, but with um, you know, it's I just seeing more representation. Mm-hmm. Um, general on TV, being able to watch TV and see yourself and go, oh, there I am, finally. And we just wanted that. And and if if Lucifer is about desire, if he's about honesty, you know, we 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 decided really early on, wasn't it, Joe? Very early, yeah. Very early, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we thought we'd get more pushback, and uh, fortunately, we didn't. And listen, I we didn't dramatize it as much as I I think looking back, I wish we had. And I think, but also, I was surprised when we were able to have Lucifer in bed with, I think, a man and a woman in episode three of season one. Like, we were shocked when we got away with that. And obviously, we implied more than we showed. And I think as shows move forward, hopefully we continually get away from that or move towards being able to dramatize moments like that. That's something that I think is important moving forward. Uh, but yeah, it was it was very important to us and and fun. It was nice to be able to, to depict that and show that and normalize it. Yay. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much for taking so much time to talk with us. I know you're both very busy. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you guys. Thanks for the show. We love it. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you. you. Coming up next, we're going to talk about three very important works of science fiction and fantasy that deal with Satan. If you're enjoying Our Opinions Are Correct, there's another podcast I think you'll want to check out. News and culture shows aren't made with trans folks like us in mind, and trans voices are routinely left out of the conversation, even though stories about us are everywhere. The Translash podcast with Amara Jones is changing that and giving our communities a voice. Imara Jones is a Peabody and Emmy award-winning writer. She's also a Black trans woman and a journalist. And Imara understands that telling our own stories and having a voice in the conversations that affect us will save trans lives. So if you're trans and want a show made for you, or you're an ally who wants to learn more, you should definitely tune in to the Translash podcast. You can hear a new episode every other Thursday. Subscribe to the Translash podcast wherever you're listening to this right now. Imagine technology that knows you from the inside out. That sees you in detail no one has ever seen before. That can take you back to the person you were. Before anything bad or painful happened. Because you're still that person. Because you're still that person. Because you're still that person. Just press rewind. And be her. Again. 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 Original podcast from Phantom Customer Media. Visit io-podcast.com to learn more.
as we kind of discussed with Ildi and Joe, Satan is such a huge pop culture obsession. And, you know, I did a little deep dive. According to IMDb, there have been 369, there should have been 666, really, but 369 <laughs> movies and TV shows about Satan in the past decade, which is up from like 147 in the 1990s. And we all know that IMDb is infallible. So this is just a fact. Mm-hmm, yes. We've had double there's Satan no, in the last decade. There's no like problem with data gathering in IMDb. But yeah, I so, do think we are living in a more satanic time. We are living it feel, in it rings true. golden age of Satan. And like, obviously, there's a lot of reasons for that, which we're going to get into. But Lucifer started airing at the same time as a show called Damien. And there's been just so much pop culture in the past decade or so that deals with Satan or demons or hell. Supernatural ended up being all about that. The Good Place, which we already talked about. The book Sandman Slim by Richard Cadry, obviously Good Omens, which we're going to talk about. Legion, Drive Angry, and there's a novel called The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune, where the Antichrist is a character. So basically, we are at peak devil right now. And mm, you know, it feels good. It's nice and warm. It's nice and toasty. And so we're going to talk about three major works that deal with Satan. And the first one I'm going to ask you about, Anna Lee, which is basically the movie. Quatermass and the Pit from 1967. And I know that you have a history with that movie. So tell us about that. Sure. Yeah. So I was first exposed to that movie as a kid. There was a British TV show in the 50s called Quatermass. And there was a miniseries that was Quatermass and the Pit. And that got squished that six-hour miniseries got squished down into like an hour-and-a-half movie called Five Million Years to Earth, uh, which is very cheesy. And um, saw it when I was a kid. My dad told me it was the scariest movie he'd seen when he mm-hmm. was a kid. So it was kind of legendary in our family. But let me tell you a little bit about the movie. The 1967 version is just an updated version of the TV show from the 50s. And Quatermass in the Pit is about a excavation in London. They're trying to dig a new tunnel for the underground, and they discover a buried spaceship there. And like you a, do. Like you do. And, you know, the military is arguing about it, and the, there's an archaeologist there who wants to, like, study it. And they bring in Quatermass, our hero, to figure out what's happening. And he's kind of a, a doctor figure from Doctor Who, and he figures out— It's this kind of psychic spaceship that has been um, influencing humans for millions of years and maybe tinkering with our DNA at the dawn of humanity. And once the ship is unburied, we discover that it has this ability to awaken humans' latent ability to be telekinetic and move objects around with our minds. And then it begins filling people's heads with images of an ancient war on Mars. And people on Earth start making war on each other and trying to kill people who are different from them. And that's what Quatermass has to figure out how to stop. How does Satan come into this? Right. Here's where Satan comes from. So the aliens in the ship are insectoid, and they have little antenna on their heads that look kind of like horns. Mm-hmm. They they look, once they pull them out of the ship, and these are, of course, ancient alien bodies that are kind of desiccated, but they look like it's actually pretty good effects, even though they're also kind of Doctor Who-like effects. Mm-hmm. But they look like locusts. Mm-hmm. And they realize, the scientist Quatermass, the archaeologist, realize that humans have this kind of species memory of these creatures with these horns kind of forcing them to do things and punishing them. And so they surmise that 
our ideas of Satan and demons come from these ancient aliens. So it kind of fits into the like chariot of the gods, ancient aliens Mm -hmm. set of stories. Um, And as the humans gain more powers from this spaceship, uh, their combined mental energy causes this massive flame to rise up over the underground station, and it takes the shape of Satan's head. And it's like, it's one of these aliens with the horns, but when it's kind of outlined, it looks like Satan. And in fact, the resolution of the film depends on Quatermass and this archaeologist character kind of studying the lore about Satan and what Satan's weaknesses are and using that to theorize about what they can use to defeat the aliens. So it really comes full circle. And I have to say this is part of a whole tradition in science fiction of aliens who are mistaken for Satan, aliens who came to Earth a long time ago and are the inspiration for all of our legends about Satan. You know, Doctor Who has a whole story about this. Mm -hmm. Um, Star Trek, I think in the animated Star Trek, they meet Satan and he's an alien. Star Wars has a species who all look like Satan and they're called the Deveronians. (laughs) Never changed Star Wars. Never Never changed. changed. And, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, obviously in Childhood's End, there's aliens who look like Satan. It's in Stargate too, you know. Stargate is another kind of ancient alien, you know, Mm -hmm. demons from beyond space and time kind of narrative. So, Bringing it home, you mentioned that there's all this fascist imagery with, like, basically we see these these aliens marching in this very Nazi-like way and rounding up people who don't belong and basically sending them to camps or, or exterminating them. And we now see this being reenacted with humans. Why does a satanic figure feed so well into this fascist idea? It's a great question, and I think that this story in particular, you know, coming in the wake of World War II is trying to ask that ask the question of why are people evil? And it was something that many scientists were trying to puzzle out after World War II. Why do otherwise friendly, nice people become fascists and allow themselves to be swept up in the hatred of people who they don't even know mm-hmm. um, just because they seem a little bit different or neighbors turning on each other? And, you know, the film basically wants to give us a scientific explanation, which is that there's this this thing buried in our memories, put in there by aliens. It's not our fault. The aliens brought it. And it's almost like it's a cycle of historical trauma that stretches all the way back to this million-year-old civilization on Mars, or I should say five-million-year-old civilization on Mars, where they had their own fascist uh, regime that was causing them to kill each other and, in fact, did wipe them out. So we know that in, in this lore, you know, Mars has been destroyed by fascism. And, and we've inherited that. And mm-hmm. it's something that's that's built into us. And there's no—it's so interesting, the end—spoilers uh, for a very old film—at the very end of uh, Quatermass in the Pit, they've defeated the alien force and people are no longer telekinetic and they're all kind of wandering around going, whoa, what just happened? But we see— Quatermass and one of the scientists, uh, a woman who's been working with the archaeologist, standing outside the underground entrance, and they're just 
staring into space, mm-hmm. like just with these looks of trauma on their face. Like the nothing. Whole credit sequence is just them looking like, what the fuck? Yeah. And it's like, I think that the implication is strongly that this isn't over, this isn't solved. This is one battle in a much longer struggle. And that they're just kind of reeling from the trauma. And it's going to be back. The spaceship isn't gone. Mm-hmm. The the part of our minds that makes us want to do evil to each other isn't gone. And there's no solution other than just try to smash it down when it comes up. So in this version, basically Satan is harnessing our worst impulses and using them to turn us into monsters, turning us into killers. It's interesting because... Satan isn't a fascist dictator. And you'd think that that would be the metaphor that they'd be going for, that they'd be like, oh, well, the reason why Satan is here is because Satan is Hitler. Mm -hmm. But actually, Satan is the spirit within all of us that turns us into the foot soldiers in someone else's war. And and it's very literally someone else's war. It's the frickin' Martians back on Mars. That's their war. And so I think— that's part of why it ends in this really ambiguous way mm-hmm. because you can't kill that. You can mm-hmm. kill Hitler, but you can't kill the thing in all of us that makes us want to love Hitler and that makes us want to be part of the in-group at the expense of the out-group. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that that's—Satan is the thing in all of us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so another— great work of SF and fantasy that I wanted to talk about is also from the late 60s. It's the movie— Also a British film. Also a British film from right around the same time, in fact. The movie Bedazzled, starring Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And we shall not speak of the remake with Brendan Fraser. That's yeah, just— Yeah, no. That one, those, we'll just Even if that you're a completist, exist. you don't need to see it. No, it's— it's. So tell know. us about Bedazzled. So Bedazzled is a little bit more— contiguous with Lucifer in terms of how it portrays the devil, Peter Cook makes Satan into a very sympathetic figure who's been punished by God. He's clearly a tool of God's kind of domination. There's this great moment early in the film where Satan explains to the human character, Stanley, played by Dudley Moore, why he rebelled against God. And he's basically like, he gets up on top of a mailbox and says, okay, I'll be God, you be me, dance around praising me, and that's all you ever do in heaven. This is my throne, see? All around me are the cherubim, seraphim, continually crying, holy, 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 the angels, archangels, that sort of thing. Now you be me, Lucifer, the loveliest angel of them all. What do I do? Well, sort of dance around praising me, mainly. What sort of things do I say? Anything that comes into your head that's nice. How beautiful I am, how wise I am, how handsome, that sort of thing. Come on, start dancing. You're wise. You're beautiful, you're handsome. Thank you very much. The universe, what a wonderful idea. Take my hat off to you. Thank you. Trees, terrific. Water, another good one. That was a good one. Yes, sex, top marks. Now make it more personal, a bit more fulsome, please. Come on. Immortal, invisible. You're handsome, you're uh, you're glorious. Thank you. You're the most beautiful person in the world. Yeah, I'm getting a bit bored with this. Can't we change places? That's exactly how I felt. You know, what's so great about that is that, you know, you can kind of get it. Like, it would get really old really fast to have to praise God all the time. Yeah. And, you know, it feels like the relationship between 
God and Satan is a very stark one of, you know, it's the kind of thing that in the TV show Lucifer, they kind of play around with. But then in the end, when you finally meet God, you realize that, oh, actually, God didn't really want to punish Lucifer. He was just trying to help Lucifer become a better version of himself or whatever by putting him through all this literal hell. But in in Bedazzled, it's like, nope, God is just shitting on Lucifer and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that because I feel like, I mean, we talked to the folks from Lucifer about how they'd sort of made a conscious decision not to make God be a dick. In fact, he's kind of like God in Lucifer is kind of like a Mr. Rogers. He's very Mr. Rogersy. Yes. So how do like how do you compare that to the God in Bedazzled? Like, why do you think there's that difference? Is it because one is in the '60s and one is in the modern world, or what? I think that you know, Bedazzled is is. I mean, obviously, it's from a different era, but it is very much. It's from that moment in the late '60s where we were there. There was a lot of rebellion against kind of you know, 1950s-style conformity mm-hmm. and against kind of the man. And, you know, it was the era of, like, Portnoy's Complaint and all this, like, very subversive Portnoy's comedy. Complaint being a famous novel by Philip Roth about a kid who's rebelling against his parents and jacking off a lot into the Saturday night dinner. <laughs> you know, like you do. And it was just this era where, like, there's so many movies and TV shows. It was the era of The Prisoner. It was the era of, like— so many weird Monty Python. And, you know, when you meet God in Bedazzled, he's just a voice. He's this booming kind of echoey voice who just like says, on thy belly shalt thou crawl. And then like, you know, poor Satan has to get on his belly and crawl around to show that he respects God. And it's just like God is this pure authoritarian who is actually— in the end, I'm just going to spoil the ending of like a 50-something-year-old movie. <laughs> I think we that ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah. In the end, basically, God gets mad at Satan for cutting the Dudley Moore character, Stanley, a break. Like, Satan needs to, to collect a certain number of souls to be released from his punishment of having to rule hell and and tempt humans into bad deeds. And so he shows up at the end and is like, look, I got all the souls and I even did a good deed. I let this one human go. I let him give have, have his soul back. And God is so pissed that Satan showed mercy to one human and that Satan basically deviated from his role that he sends Satan back to hell to do it all over again. And it's just this God's whole plan for Satan is just that he should be an instrument of punishment and destruction. God comes across looking like a total dick in that movie. And basically, that that's the reveal at the end of the movie is that as much as we don't like the underhanded things that we've seen the devil doing throughout the movie, by the end, we understand that, oh, it, actually, it's all thanks to God. God is the reason why Satan is, is bad. That's so interesting because it is a big contrast with what we see in Quatermass in the Pit, where essentially the people who are obedient are the ones who are Satan. And this right. is the authority figure who is, I mean, God is kind of Satan, a kind of like a fascist Satan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of what we see Satan doing in his day-to-day life is just these weird little pranks like convincing a pigeon to, to shit on someone's head and like ripping the last page out of an Agatha Christie novel so people get to the end and they're like, oh, I don't get to find out who the killer was. I'm going to go commit some <laughs> sins now. And it's just like these weird little petty misdeeds that he does that he's like, ha, 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 uh-huh. versus God who's just like a straight up asshole who is just like, he's I'm going to crush you. the carceral spiritual state. 
or whatever. Yeah. And the the interesting, other interesting thing about Bedazzled is that it has all this monkey's paw kind of tropes that like in the movie, the devil offers Stanley Moon seven wishes in exchange for his soul. And so Stanley Moon can wish for anything he wants. And whereas in Lucifer, you see like his main power is getting people to like admit with startling clarity exactly what they desire. In Bedazzled, the whole point of the devil is that he takes advantage of the fact that you can't speak clearly about what you desire. Like that Stanley in that movie has very simple wants. He wants this woman that he has a crush on to like him back, and he wants to not be a nobody anymore. But Lucifer finds ways to twist that around. So he gives these imprecise wishes that always backfire. There's always like some horrible twist to it that's not what he wanted. And it's basically because... Stanley's incapable of saying, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's kind of a reversal of that in a way. Yeah. And and in that way, it really does sound like it's a kind of prototype for Lucifer, for that character of Lucifer. It's, it's sort of a reverse Lucifer, but it also is like the idea of like, I mean, this is one year before the Rolling Stones recorded Sympathy for the Devil. And clearly this is a sympathetic portrayal of the devil. Which and might have even been a inspiration for that song. Might have, actually. It's making us kind of feel sorry for the devil, but also show us that the devil's main power is our own lack of self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. That's why I say it, it is very much dealing with the same questions as the show Lucifer, very but without so. without it being therapeutic. Instead, you know, the devil in Bedazzled is a trickster, mm-hmm. you know? He's 100% trick. He's like Loki. Not, yeah, and he's not necessarily trying to torture people. In fact, he doesn't really want to torture people. It's really God who's into that. Mm-hmm. It's it's all God. And God is just, you know, a sadistic monster who just wants us to suffer for some reason. It's never made clear. All God wants is worship, and he just wants people to say how wonderful he is all the time. And if you are doing anything else but saying how wonderful God is, then you get a smack on the nose. It's very Old Testament God. Like, that's very. that's a very Old Testament God energy. It's like, mm-hmm. all right, worship me. Sometimes I'm going to do really horrible things to you, like make you almost kill your son or like make you have sores for 20 years I and know. beg in the street. God. But, you know, Job. whatever. Abraham and Isaac, Job, like God was, Old Testament God was like kind of a tough jerk. love. Tough love. Yeah. A lot of tough love. <laughs> so let's get to our final satanic story that we're yes, going to talk about today. I'm excited about this one. So we're going to talk about the TV series Good Omens, which of course Yay. is based on a novel. So tell us about how Good Omens portrays Satan. So Satan only shows up at the very end of Good Omens, and he's basically, he's a big, giant, red Benedict Cumberbatch (laughs) who's just, like, shouting, and he's just, like, and the whole thing is that he screams with, with outrage when his son, the Antichrist, rejects him, and... The Antichrist turns out to be just a regular kid who, because he, through a series of shenanigans, missed out on his, you know, satanic indoctrination, is just a a sweet guy. And, you know, there's this moment where he's like, Satan's not really my dad. Your father is coming to destroy you, probably to destroy all of us. My dad? He wouldn't hurt anybody. Not your earthly father, Satan. Your father who is no longer in heaven. He is coming and he is angry. So what do you want me to do about it? So how do you see Good Omens fitting in with, like, other recent stories about Satan, like, say, Supernatural or Lucifer? 
The thing that Good Omens has in common with Supernatural, which since the novel came out a long time before Supernatural, it probably was an influence on Supernatural rather than the other way around. It's this notion that angels and demons are basically the same. Mm-hmm. They're dicks. And like angels and demons are both these powerful but kind of amoral, shitty people who just want humanity to suffer for their own ends. And like the thing, the common thread with with this series and Supernatural and I think a bunch of other portrayals recently is that angels and demons very much want to fight the final battle of Armageddon. They want to kill each other. And if every human has to die as collateral damage for them to get to have their glorious final battle, they're totally fine with that. And they don't really give a shit either way. They don't care who gets hurt as long as they get what they want. And there's not really a meaningful distinction between good and evil in that scenario. It's just there's humans and then there's everybody else, kind of. Yeah, I feel like in Good Omens, the role that the angels and demons are playing kind of reminds me of like the salesman in Glengarry Glen Ross, <laughs> where it's like it's a predatory, competitive kind of role. Heaven is for closers. Heaven is for closers. But actually, it, what really is the case is closers are the people who get the most souls, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to you're trying to get the most. They're, you're in there in this competition petition for souls. And so, yeah, it's like, it isn't even heaven is for closers. It's just like closers are the ones who rack it up and hell is for closers too. Um, There's like, and I love in Good Omens how we ultimately realize that it's a bureaucracy and it's all one big giant bureaucracy. Like hell and heaven are all kind of in the same building. And it's Mm -hmm. just like, do you take the escalator up or down? And so I love that we Like in Bedazzled and in Lucifer, we start to see this angel and devil character in Good Omens, Crowley and Azaraphale. We see them becoming more engaging as people the more they love humans Mm -hmm. and also the more that they kind of question their roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's, again, it's in this tradition of like, well, let's Let's think really about what is Satan and what is evil and what is good and who decides that. I wonder if you could just talk about that delightful relationship between the angel and the devil or the angel and the demon in Good Omens. I mean, you know, homoeroticism, obviously. We we like it. We enjoy it. <laughs> um, thank you. Yes, please. Um, but also, I think It's that like this the is, greatest bromance. It, it really is. And like the notion that, you know, like I said, there's no good and evil. There's just us and everybody else. And like this notion that there's something kind of intrinsically lovable about humanity once you can get past all of this nonsense about like a mass, a huge destiny and like a higher cause and all this other stuff. I think that that's a kind of subversive story that we really need right now because the world is full of people who believe that they have a higher cause or a higher calling that may require most of us to suffer a lot in order for them to, you know, achieve some kind of greatness. Like there's a lot of like our greatness is going to come at the expense of like huge amounts of suffering and certain people who we don't consider human are going to be just consigned to just misery. This trope, which you again see in Supernatural with the angel Castiel, you see it over and over again in stories about angels and demons that once you kind of quote unquote I don't know, go native once you once you interact with humanity enough and start to kind of take on, understand humanity and take on our values, 
do you see the value in, in humanity and, and in things like, you know, nice wine and whiskey and music mm-hmm. and like opera and all these fast things. Fast cars. That, fast cars. All these things that Crowley and Azraphael and like, you know, Lucifer and Castiel, all these things that people kind of get drawn into loving that are more meaningful in a way than like some divine purpose you know, that it's like the small things and the little human moments and human bits of connection that are actually what's important rather than like some kind of great quest for goodness or salvation or whatever. I think that that's actually a really good message, especially right now. It's about people who are supposed to be enemies, who've been told their whole lives that they're enemies, realizing that they have a lot more in common than they thought they did. And it's about forming alliances and alliances that aren't supposed to happen. And, you know, we're living through a time in history now where people are forming divisions that really seem absurd and shouldn't happen. You know, we're, we're kind of fencing ourselves off from each other. Yeah. And so, you know, I just want to close by saying that I think it's interesting to think about the dichotomy of Satan. Like we talked about like Satan as like an archetype of fascism, but also Satan is someone who liberates you to be kind of an individual and to, you know, live your fullest self. And I think that part of why Satan is so fascinating is that he can embody these extreme opposites. Like Satan's this sort of, you know, enforcer who enforces the law. He's a punisher, like Ildi and Joe were saying. But he's also a rule breaker. He's also someone who tempts us to kind of you know, follow our own desires rather than doing what we're told. He's an anti-authority figure, but he's also an authority figure. He's, you know, a rebel against God, but he's also the king of hell. And so, you know, it's like you can kind of project what you want onto Satan. And this is a thing that, you know, as we were talking about before we recorded the episode— Fascist leaders often do kind of play both sides. They'll say, well, I'm against the real elites. I'm against the people who are really trying to control you. I'm trying to free you from subjugation by getting you to all band together in a a faceless mob and crush everybody who doesn't look like us. Yes. (laughs) You know, and so fascist leaders often will kind of play the dichotomy of rebel and authority figure, and Mm -hmm. they'll try to be both at the same time. They try to be the outsider and the ultimate insider. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of why Satan is so seductive, which we do have to kind of think about and watch out for, is that he plays into that desire to be both at once. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting in these stories is a lot of the writing in them is about working out how you can do that in a healthy way. Like, how can you be a rebel against authority but not end up becoming that authority yourself? And that's the question is, can that be done? And I think in Lucifer, there's one answer to that question. And in, you know, Quatermass in the Pit, there's a different answer to that question. Maybe you can never get away from that. So... You know, it's just choose your devil. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. Uh, As we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a Patreon and we love our Patreon supporters. And we we exist thanks to the generosity and and loveliness of our Patreon supporters. That is located at patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. We also are on Twitter at OOACpod. And you can subscribe to us wherever podcasts are available, even in the bowels of hell even in the bowels of heaven all of the bowels <laughs> we're available in any bowel that you happen to be in uh-huh. if you like our show please review us on apple podcasts and leave reviews elsewhere please tell your friends 
You know, we really just appreciate all of your support. And we want to thank our incredible, heroic, valiant producer, Veronica Simonetti, for everything that she does to make this show more awesome. And we want to thank Chris Palmer for providing us with our music. And we once again want to thank you, our listeners. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, uh, but we'll have an extra next week on Patreon. Bye! Bye! Bye!